This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor at Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Professor, we're going to have a really interesting show today. We have the Chief Investment Officer at Raymond James, uh, Larry Adam, who you've shared the stage with at events in the past. So we're going to quickly get some comments of, of him and you together for, for maybe a few seconds. But, Professor, give us your view on the markets, what's been happening of late, uh, and, and, and your and your read going to the end of the year here. Yeah, well, uh, let's let's look at the macro picture uh, first. Um, Powell has uh, held a, a virtual event where he just reiterated that uh, taper will begin. Um, uh, he did also said inflation is faster than we expect. Uh, he may be forced to raise interest rates earlier. He's not prepared to do that now. Um, as you know, the, the, the November 3rd is uh, going to be the next uh, Fed meeting, which will be uh, the week um, uh, the week after next. Um, uh, there won't be any really significant data that comes in because the two important price reports are going to be on the 9th and 10th of November, uh, and the employment report is not going to be until the 5th. So. Uh, he will have a benign um, re- report on the personal consumption expenditure deflator, but uh, he cannot be blind to what is, is going on in the energy markets, uh, in the oil markets. Uh, gasoline is rising nationally uh, at a rate of uh, at least a penny a day for the last two weeks. Um um, uh, we already know what faces the heating season, uh, and it would be acute if it, if it turns out to be a cold heating season. Uh, Biden's, uh, ratings on, uh, economic performance are falling dramatically, uh, mainly because people see that inflation and, and fear they are not going to be able to catch up. Uh, so he may get an earfall. It's very interesting then a week from next. To hear uh, the, uh, the you know to hear what he actually says, as I said, um, whether his tone in the press conference is more um, uh, 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 hawkish as a result of the price pressures uh, and uh, the supply chain uh, factors um, that we see. In the meantime. Um, the, you know, up till today, at least, earnings have been good, and the S and P hit an all-time high yesterday. Uh, we had uh, Snap telling us uh, that uh, they've seen a slowdown in ads because of Apple's new uh, policies uh, that has hit the, some of the tech names. Uh, whether that's going to be permanent or not, I don't know. What would really hit the tech names 
is if interest rates were to go up because that that would discount those cash flows uh by by a, a large amount there's still my feeling that uh we're going to have a, um a, a correction by the end of the year uh likely when powell becomes more hawkish uh, as a result of uh the um inflation uh numbers uh that uh, that he will see. Also, it is next Tuesday we get that monthly money supply. I do want to see whether that's coming under control because that's an important way to that we need to stop uh, inflation. We cannot just be pouring out uh, the money uh, supplying uh, the way we have. Um, we saw a bit of a pickup on the last month. I want to see whether it uh, slows down again like it did in, in July and August. So, you know that that is a data point that I, I find to be important, uh, uh, basically uh, coming up. But everything is the inflation story. I mean, on on the labor front, on the supply front, um, uh, in, in in my opinion, don't get me wrong, and I've said this a long time, these supply side disruptions are by and large caused by demand that cannot be filled. Um, uh, because the demand for goods is so big, uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really a demand side inflation that we're getting right now. Uh, it is not really just a supply side, uh, phenomenon. In terms of the the other major things, I guess we've talked about the bond rates and 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 the yeah. ten year. Uh, we had we had some movement to the ten year this week. It's sort of settling back down. Yeah. Uh, it's volatile. It was 170 this morning, 164. Uh, I, I mean, you know, uh, the, the 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 long bond has you know a dual thing. In one way, it likes the Fed to fight inflation, um, um, and what you're getting is a flatter and flatter curve. Uh, uh, you know, you're getting the two years that have broken through those March highs, but not the ten year. Um, you know, if he says we're going to hike up rates and slow down inflation, we may see the we may see the ten year relatively stable, but that will still increase all the short term discount rates um, uh, that we see. It's hard it, again. You know, as I've always lectured, the 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 impact on the long rate of a of a tightening or easing on the short rate is always that ambiguity because there are there are two opposing factors uh, uh, on that. You still also have the risk. Uh, uh, hedging that takes place on the long bond, which, you know, we've talked about, you know, many, many weeks as being a very, very important factor, keeping the general levels uh, very low. We talked a bit about inflation, things at the Fed, uh, and, and what he sees as some of the challenges, really a more aggressive Fed, t- higher inflation. As you look at the worldview, any, as you see inflation, any impacts as you see going into the end of the year from the Fed, from your outlook on inflation, what's, what's your baseline worldview here? Yeah, I guess I still am in the camp that inflation is transitory. And I know that's a, a highly used word. And I think you have to define what transitory is, right? And we've been on record here that we think that inflation will likely peak during the fourth quarter and then ultimately start to ease as we go into next year. Now, is it going to get back to where it was pre-pandemic? No, it's still going to be in that 2 2.5% range, but it is going to start to ease. In fact, I could make the case that a lot of these things that people are talking about with, with the supply chain risk, in some ways down the road, that could ultimately be deflationary. I mean, if you look at the number of 
boats and ships that are being created, the number of containers that are being put onto these these ships, right? You got to remember that before the pandemic, that was a very competitive business. You had a lot of consolidation in that space, right? And now we're going to add a lot more capacity. I think down the road, you know, as we get more and more pieces of the puzzle to this supply chain, it ultimately could lead to some deflationary uh, aspects to, to inflation. And then the other point, I just, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, inflation, and I think you always got to get into the mind of psychology, right? And you hear a lot of these businesses saying, well, you know, supply chain, you better get out there and buy things earlier because you don't want to miss it for the holiday season. Well, they have a reason they want you to, right? The earlier you buy it, the higher their margins are going to be, right? If they don't get, if they, these things are still around after the holidays, you don't get the pricing, right? If you look at it from a political perspective, if you listen to a Republican speak right now, what are they talking about? Inflation. And if you look at surveys, inflation is right now the number one concern of this economy. So they're playing to that. So they're going to continue to do that. And then my other point is that every, every time I see the media focusing on a topic, that tends to be the, the peak, if you will. And I got to tell you, I was watching the Sunday shows this past weekend. And whether it was Meet the Press this week or Sunday morning, all three of those shows had somebody out off the coast of L.A. and Long Beach talking about these supply chain uh, issues. So I am, I think a lot of this is overblown. They, they are for real, but I think a lot of them are exaggerated in their ultimate long-term impact. Yeah, well, I, I tend to think it's more, much more serious than that. I, I mean, I, uh, you look at the energy complex and the commodity complex, and uh, uh, first of all, the labor situation and the shortages in labor uh, you know, we, 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 I mean, you know, Amazon hiring at $18, uh, minimum wage and a thousand dollar bonus. I'm not sure whether it's going to get workers, um, uh, uh, at the low end, uh, wages have already gone up 20% housing costs, which are not in the official statistics right now. Everyone knows they're up 15 to 20%, um, uh, if not more, um, and again, the official statistics are, are very, very lagged in terms of how they get some of these, uh, especially housing data in there. So I, I think it is there. I, I do agree with you. I think long run things look very good. We're going to get back to that 2% inflation, but not before we have a, a hump of inflation um, that we're going to have to deal with uh, through several years. Yeah, the, the thing, I, look, I agree with the professor. He taught me, so, uh, you know, he's, he's the master of that. But, <laughs> no, we uh, can all disagree, man. I'm not right, certainly on, on everything. I, I did predict last year, and what concerned me was the tremendous increase in liquidity of the M2 money supply. And I'm not just talking about quantitative easing. I'm actually talking about liquid uh, deposits in people's accounts at levels, uh, at rates that we had never, ever seen before. Um, and I think that a lot of that liquidity is pushing out into the system everywhere, and it has to be dealt with. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, as, as as I say, this is not, uh, you know, I, I think if the Fed has to move tighter, there's going to be an adjustment of the market. But then once they adjust and and slow this inflation, wow, I, I you know, I am still. Uh, as optimistic for the long run as ever. I just think there's going to be much more challenges in the short run that will lead to more volatility over the next um, three, maybe six months um, uh, than than some observers. 
Um, again, no one can predict the short-term <laughs> future with any certainty, um, but um, uh, just looking at those those particular trends. By the way, I, I should mention one uh, trend that the stock market likes is uh, the Biden tax plan is uh, tax plan is falling apart, and um, uh, you know now that we we hear Kristen Cinema is not particularly fond of uh, an increase in the corporate tax rate. That is huge news. If if they can't get a corporate tax rate uh, increase, and that's a big positive for the stock market, and that in a way could be uh, something that uh, is the positive thrust that offsets uh, what Powell has to do in terms of making sure that inflationary expectations don't get out of hand. Professor, thank you. We're talking with the Chief Investment Officer Raymond James, Larry Adam, uh, getting your your big picture view on on the economy, on the market. So we got your view a little bit on, on transitory inflation. Do you want to respond to any other points? It looks like you want to get in there on, on what the C- Professor Siegel was saying there. Yeah, I mean, two other things, you know, to, to just piggyback on what the professor was talking about. I, again, I think this all comes down to definitions, right? And when people always question and say, well, what's transitory? I would say, well, what's the opposite? What do you mean? The opposite of transitory is persistent or sustainable. And again, I don't think the sustainable increases that you have been seeing in cars and, you know, different goods that are out there, rental prices, they're not, I don't think that that is sustained going upwards and upwards, right? I think it's been a one time, almost like a tax. We've kind of brought it up to levels where it should be. And then I think that pace of acceleration continues to slow. And when I was going to talk about with the professor, because a lot of things that he talked about when it comes to inflation, right? would have been the biggest drivers of this low inflation environment that we have been in for so long. It's been globalization. It's been technology leading to productivity gains. And it's been what we've called the frugal consumer. And I would not underestimate that frugal consumer right now, because when I look at the surveys out there right now, you're seeing more and more of this popping up that consumers are starting to balk at higher prices. You know, there was one survey out there by Morning Consult that for people that didn't buy something, over 50% of those people said it was because of the higher price of the good. And I think that's why you're going to see businesses do everything they can to keep these prices lower for longer. Because remember, inflation and hyperinflation is really a mindset, right? If you look back from a, from a historical perspective, it's when people get nervous and like, oh my gosh, I got to buy before this goes up. I don't really see that panic right now. So I'm not as overly concerned long-term about inflation. I think it's cyclical in different parts of the, of the economy. I mean, just look back at, you know, things like exercise bikes, right? Air purifiers, uh, heaters, patio, whatever it is. A lot of those have come down significantly from the high level of prices that they had just a year ago. So I'm not as, as worried as, um, you know, some people are when it comes to those long-term inflationary problems. It's interesting, the technology and, and globalization efforts. Certainly, technology is only going in one direction, and we see we're, we're using technology to find cheaper prices and and a lot of different elements um, that are making our lives easier and faster and more streamlined. I mean, we're doing things on Zoom. We're doing this call via you know a Zoom a Zoom link. Um, we're doing more meetings via Zoom links. Um, less a little bit less travel there and but but as you as you see the deglobalization is there a deglobalization at all with the china supply chain issues and people questioning how they set up things before are they are they reevaluating any of those supply chain logistics from from the pandemic 
so I do think some of that is taking place. So I'll give you some examples, right? So a bunch of manufacturers have come out and started to put their um, their their uh, manufacturing capabilities in in Mexico or on the or, or Latin America, right? Why? Because now they can ship and tend to bring things closer up on the East Coast side, right? So you don't have that big reliance on that that distance coming into California. So you are seeing some of that taking place. You've seen some uh, companies. I mean, again, I'm talk, we're talking about the potential for a, a glut in some things. You know, some of these chip manufacturers that were getting everything from Asia are talking about putting significant dollar amounts into manufacturing those chips here in the United States, right? So now we're going to have Asia making them, the U.S. making them. Down the road, you know, again, that could lead to some more gluts and cheaper prices overall. The other point that you make when it comes to uh, technology, you know, a lot of these jobs that are out there, make no mistake about it. There are over 10 million job openings, but businesses are not going to stand idly by and watch them unfill. What are they doing to fill them? They're looking at technological uh, solutions to this. And just like when you go to the, to the food store or Target or whatever, and you don't have you know, the this cashier checking you out, when you go to a bank and you don't have the teller anymore, you know, don't be surprised that all these you know, very good trucking jobs, for example, don't someday all of a sudden get replaced by automated trucks. Don't think that warehouse shortages are not going to be replaced by, you know, computers or robots that are doing that work, right? And what's that going to do? That's going to long-term lower those price pressures again because it'll also bring wages down longer term as more and more gets done by technology. So it's something that we're watching. It's serious. And like I tell my kids, get your education because you're going to need it. You got to figure out how do you operate with the machines. Man plus machine hopefully uh, is, is better than just the machine itself. Um, yeah. as, as, as you think about, if we step back, so we went deep into the inflation, the economy standpoints, how are you looking at the markets where we are today? What's your overall big picture view, uh, as you're, as you're suggesting to clients, how, how are you looking at the markets? So when it comes to the U S equity market, we remain, you know, uh, optimistic on that. Our year end target for this year was 4,600 for the SP 500 next year. It's 4,900. Uh, when you were talking to professor Siegel, I would tell you that a good a good dynamic that we have to keep a close eye on because these targets could shift is the potential for that corporate tax hike. We have $225 built in for next year for earnings for the S&P 500. That includes the corporate tax rate going from 21 to 25. If we do not get as big or no corporate tax increase, there's upside to both our earnings and our price targets. So that is a big driver of it. But taking that out of the equation, the reason we're optimistic on the equity market, I would say there's three reasons. The first one, if you look back historically, as long as the economy remains strong, that's a good market for the equity market. And, you know, we, we look at historically when the U.S. economy grows between 2 and 4%, it's been positive 80% of the time, and it's been up on average double digits, 12%. Earnings, I think earnings are going to grow 10%. And, you know, you hear people talk about, Wow, we've already hit peak earnings, but 10% earnings growth next year, even including that tax hike, is still above average. That's a positive driver of the markets. And then the third reason is just pretty much time. If you look historically at bull markets, they on average last about six years. We're only about one and a half years into this current bull market. So I think from a timing perspective, we're optimistic as well. 
when you look at those drivers of that earnings growth, um, is there certain sectors that are, are driving it higher? How much, uh, you know, it, with some of these inflation pressures that are in the system today, is it is it a is it a price increases offsetting some of these things? How, how are you how are you viewing that ten percent earnings growth? Yeah. So if you look at four of the five sectors that we like right now: communication services, consumer discretionary, industrials, and energy. There are what you call the cyclical sectors, which are going to reap the benefits of this economy reaccelerating. But more importantly, as the global economy starts to come on board and reaccelerate. And if you look at earnings next year, the market is focused on next year's earnings. Okay, and if you look at next year's earnings, those four sectors are the top four earners, if you will, from a growth perspective. I want to be where the growth is. That's what's going to drive these equity markets higher. So we do like those particular sectors. How do you feel about tech? So we're talking about tech as driving productivity. Um, one of the things that long-term lowers, you know, it's helpful for the economy, lowering prices, uh, is some of those sectors you mentioned, the communication services have an element of tech, as, and consumer discretionary has, you know, like an Amazon. But how are you thinking about the quote-unquote tech sector? So I still, I like this, the tech uh, sector. I think you need to have a little bit more selectivity. I particularly like the large cap tech. And this is probably one of my favorite topics, but tech is not like the tech that it used to be. Remember when technology back when we used to talk about the four horsemen, right? Back in the you know early 2000s, technology companies were very cyclical, right? They either had a hardware or a software product and they kind of rode that cycle, right? Today's companies are not like that. I mean, just look at the, the two big examples that we always use. Look at Apple, right? Apple's got hardware, it's got software, it's got a consumer, direct consumer uh, pricing and, and sales. It's partly a finance company. It's getting into the healthcare space, right? If you look at Amazon, Amazon has the tech side with the cloud. It's got the consumer discretionary with the online e-commerce. They have physical stores. They've become a logistics company in many ways, right? So like an industrial company, and they have a finance. So my point is, these big tech companies that we're talking about are much more diversified than they were back 20, 30 years ago. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, I do continue to like them. They are also the drivers of the global economy. You know, one of the reasons why, and we'll probably talk about this later, but I like the U.S. over international markets. And if you look at where the best brands are, they're here in the United States. The top five brands in the world are all U.S. 11 of the top 15 brands are here in the U.S., right? I want to be with the leaders of the industries. They're here in the U.S. A lot of them are those tech names. You know, one of the things, and, and sort of teasing out was something uh, we'll, we'll, we should talk about more on the second half of the program, but uh, as we wrap up maybe this first half, you know, we talked a little bit about China, the supply chain issues, but also China tech. You know, if you said who was giving U.S. tech a run for the money, these big China tech companies were delivering very, very fast growth. Uh, but then have gotten really knocked down, and you could say knocked down by the government, knocked down by all sorts of issues. And, you know, there's elements of the U.S. regulators that would like to do similar things to our big tech companies. Um, and we see comments that, you know, um, you know, certain politicians make about breaking up big tech and, and sort of wanting to get in, thinking that they're monopolies and having issues. It, it, do you do you worry about what happened from China Tech spreading back to the U.S. if if from any of our our politicians? So um, two sides to that answer. When it comes to China Tech, I actually think you're going to start to see 
a lot of that rhetoric dialed back because I think there was a big timing factor in all those regulations coming out in China. And just keep in mind that this upcoming November is the Chinese Communist Party convention. And during that convention is where they highlight all of the successes that they've had during the pre- over the previous administration here, right? As they do the run-up to the election next year. So it's a communist country. So they wanted to continue to find ways to do this common prosperity. And they actually even got buy-in from a lot of these companies. To me, that's already done. Once they get through this, I think you'll see a lot of that start to ease. In fact, you're starting to see it ease right now. And I also don't think that they're going to want these issues, and I would even put part of this Evergrande in there. I don't think China wants these big issues around when they start to be the host of the, uh, the, the Winter Olympics next year. You know, China's a very proud country. I don't think they want to have this overhang, you know, in any way deterring people from seeing what they have done, because they are going to be on the biggest stage. As far as the U.S., um, it is a concern. It is something that we do watch very closely. But I would tell you that the historical pattern down in Washington is that when it comes to regulation of big tech, there's a big arc that comes out, right? And then when you look at it over time, it kind of ends with a whimper, right? And part of that might be that, you know, I think people understand how vital they are to are the U.S. economy. I think it's also important to see you know, where some of the big players in Washington actually reside in California, right? So I, I think it's something to watch. I'm not overly concerned about it because I think that historical pattern will once again play out. If I'm wrong and they do have to break up some of these big tech companies, I actually think that there's even more value in breaking them up, right? As I've talked about the diversification that they've seen in them, you know, I think a lot of these could be standalone businesses that would actually continue to thrive. Uh, as you think about the, if there things were to go uh, astray, is, is that you know what I guess would be your biggest risk factor? Do you do you think rates? You know the market has been trending higher. You know the the interest rate market has been trending higher. Does that give any competition in your mind if the ten year keeps rising? What what are the the risks that you're looking at? So if I had to pick one singular risk, I would probably say it's energy prices. And you know the reason for that is that if you look back, you know five of the last six recessions that we've had we've seen a significant uptick in uh, oil prices. And given, you know, we're going up here, getting close to the holiday season with, you know, winter starting, that is something that, that, that I would keep an eye on. Right now, gasoline prices are around, on average across the United States, around 330. I think if we started to get that 375 to four, you know, that'll start to eat in to that consumer spending power. And I think if you look back historically, that also feeds into those inflationary fears that I was talking about earlier. And if all of a sudden you start to see those inflationary fears start to manifest themselves in a greater um, you know, pace, that could cause the Fed to come in in what I would believe prematurely, and then that would obviously slow the economy down. So oil is one of those things that we continue to keep an eye on. I will tell you that our, our forecast for uh, oil is that you're actually going to see that start to subside. We've obviously had a very big rally in oil prices you know, you know, year to date, but I think you're going to start to see a supply response, right? You know, when you listen to these companies coming out with their earnings in the energy space, you're going to hear that they are putting more and more money now finally into CapEx and in drilling. And that incentive wasn't really there at the beginning of the year because it was pretty close to their break-evens. But now when you can get profit of 25 to $30 per barrel, I mean, that's a pretty nice incentive to start, you know, producing more oil. So I think that that's one of the things that will tamp down ultimately where 
uh, oil prices will go. But that is one thing that we're keeping uh, an eye on. Uh, you, you said um, interest rates. I mean, that is a risk. I don't think interest rates are going to go uh, dramatically higher um, above 2%. And, you know, the reason for that is that this economy, to your point, has just become so economically sensitive to interest rates because of all the debt. And that's not just at the government. It's for businesses. It's for, you know, you and me, for consumers, right? And if you look at a long-term chart of the 10-year Treasury yield, for example, after each successive recession and or crisis, the peak in the 10-year Treasury yield gets lower and lower and lower. And why is that? Because we're issuing more and more debt, and our debt keeps getting higher and higher and higher. And if you look right now, we have a record amount of debt, and it's a record amount when you look at it versus the size of GDP. So it's a record amount. But believe it or not, the amount that we pay in interest payments as a percentage of outlays is the lowest it's been since 1945 because rates are so low. So if all of a sudden, to your point, if rates moved higher, all of a sudden that would eat into what the government can spend because they're going to have to pay a lot more in interest payments. It's going to eat in what all of us can do because it's going to lead to higher uh, interest rates on you know everything that we do. So that's a risk. I think that's a lower probability of a spiral higher of uh, interest rates, but uh, it's something that I would keep an eye on. It's sort of one of those interesting dynamics where everybody worries, you know, and you get to the emerging market arena, you, and, and, and even when I guess we had the sovereign debt crisis in, in the Eurozone before Draghi came in and did whatever it takes to save the Euro and, and caused all those yields to plummet and, and you were you're having skyrocketing yields, yields in, in the Euroland. You know, Japan is like the country with the most debt and the lowest yields. And, and they've been one of the, the countries that have been able to navigate. Um, you know, everybody worried about all the debt that they were having. And, you know, and then you had the central bank coming out and quote unquote monetizing the debt and buying all the bonds that the government's issuing. But yields are still zero to negative. They've been able to keep that out there. Is, is what Japan's experiencing what you think will come here over time? Like, is, is, is that our future? So I don't, well, I think lower for longer, yes. And I think one of the dynamics that you're referring to there when it comes to Japan and Europe is the aging demographics. And if you look here in the United States, just as an example, we have about 100 million people that are aged 55 years of age and older, right? But the important thing about that, that's about a little under a third of our population. But the point is they control 70% of the wealth here in the United States. And what gets, what do you do when you get older, right? You look, get a little bit more conservative. You want a little bit more liquidity. You want a little bit more income. You focus more on bonds. So I think demographics is another reason why rates will stay lower for longer. I don't think, though, that we're going to experience negative interest rates, which is what Japan has done and Europe has, has done. Because I think, you know, obviously that was a policy that they pursued, and it was an experiment, right, over there. And it's an experiment that they thought would yield good results, but it really hasn't. And I think the fallacy in that was, hey, if you send rates negative, that's going to be so cheap for people to borrow. And then, you know, negative mortgage rates are going to be great. The fallacy in that is that when rates go negative, who's going to lend, right? If, I can't, if, I, if I'm not going to make any money, why am I going to lend it to you, right? So I, I'm pretty confident that the Fed is very scared about going in the negative interest rate territory. So I think they'll do everything they can to prevent that from happening, which is what happened in Japan and Europe. 
How do you think about the? We talked a little bit uh, for a second on on China right at the, we we closed the first half discussion. Uh, as you think about these international markets, the, you know one of the big asset allocation questions is U.S. versus foreign. You've been on a strong run for the U.S. You know a very strong decade. Is is that going to be the next decade? Is the U.S. Have we seen our our best days, or are you sticking with the U.S. even with higher higher multiples? Just because we have such higher growth and and, and better companies here. So. Uh, I'm going to give a two-step answer. Number one, I continue to favor U.S. large cap over international developed markets, so Europe and Japan. And the reason for that is that if you do the analysis, U.S. companies are the most efficient, productive, and profitable country companies in the world. And if you look at that dispersion that you've seen over the last you know, 10 years, for example, all of that has been met because of the fact that we've had much more robust earnings growth here in, in the U.S. So I think a lot of that has been warranted, and I think that that trend is likely to continue. As I mentioned, you also have the better brands here in the U.S. So I like the U.S. as a v- large-cap U.S. as my core. As you mentioned, large-cap U.S. tech is dominant. Large-cap U.S. Uh, stocks are dominated by tech. 43% is going to be in tech-related companies. So then my next decision from a portfolio's perspective is, do I want to be in small cap or do I want to be in international? Because when you look at those, they can complement the large cap um, exposure because they have a lot more exposure in those cyclical sectors, less in tech. And when it comes down to that decision for me, I prefer small cap over international because earnings growth is going to dramatically outperform for small cap next year and 2023. And we were talking about uh, energy prices. Just keep in mind, energy prices here are around 3.30 a gallon. You go into Japan, you're talking about two dollars more, so five plus. You go into Europe, you're talking well over a double. Why is that important? Because that has the early signs of, of budding inflation. The ECB has a single mandate, and it's inflation. And when you look at some of those inflationary figures that are coming out, it's the highest it's been in decades. So if the ECB has to come in prematurely, which it did previously, that could, you know, hamper the recovery aspects there. So my preference would be more in the small cap space to get more of that cyclical exposure for our portfolios. Yeah, that, that's quite interesting. When you look at the at Raymond James, you have a lot of clients and, and a lot of people doing doing a lot of different activities. Um, as you see what clients have been doing are, are they are they fully invested do you see you know the client base um being in the markets or, or any challenges that they, that you see most often from from the the clients of raymond james yeah i i think people have, have been i you know i hate to work cautiously optimistic but that's the way it's been and i've actually viewed that as a positive right because what's the old saying the market likes to climb that wall of worry And I would tell you that I think a lot of those worries are misplaced, right? People talk about valuations and how they're expensive. I agree. If you look at the pure PE, it's expensive. But when you do it relative to bonds, I think I still think that they're very attractive. You know, people are like, oh, we're past peak earnings. That's a terrible thing. As I mentioned to you earlier, 10% plus earnings growth next year is still above average. And then you have all these myths out there, and, and we could talk about them, but, you know, everybody said, higher rates are going to kill the equity market. Well, people fail to realize that the 10-year Treasury yield started the year below 1%. We're at 165. 
So we've gone higher by 75 basis points. And what the equity market do? It's been up almost 20%. So higher rates isn't necessarily a negative for the equity market as long as earnings growth is there because the economic growth is there. And then a lot of the other myths that are out there, you know, inflation is going to kill. Well, again, same story as the interest rates. It hasn't killed this bull market. People look at politics when President Trump on the market's going to sell, when the Democrats have a sweep, the market's going to sell. No, you got to get back to the fundamentals that we have already talked about. Economic growth is strong. Earnings growth is going to be strong. That should lead to higher prices longer term. You know, we're we're talking with Larry Adam, Chief Investment Officer, Raymond James. Uh, You know, when this sort of stock versus bond discussion, we talked a lot. You know, Professor Eagles talked about the new 60-40 is, in his view, something closer to 75-25 because of these these sort of very low bond rates, higher expected returns on stocks, and and sort of the challenges of negative tips yields being like the bond bond story. Do you have a view on the ultimate uh, 60-40 type model? Are, Are you? as uh, sort of overweight stocks. How do you think about that in, in, in solving those challenges for investors? So I think there's two different questions in there, right? 60-40 becoming a 70-30 is more from a strategic perspective. I think he's referring to being overweight bonds or, or stocks is going to be what your strategic is, right? So when it comes to the 60-40, 70-30, I rely on our advisors, right? You want to see what the risk profile is of your client and you want to have the, the appropriate portfolio. The one thing that I would mention until just recently, believe it or not, if you do the work, if you go back to 2000, a 60-40 portfolio until just recently had actually outperformed a 100% equity portfolio if you rebalanced, right, when it became out of alignment. And if you think about it, that makes sense, right? Go back to 2000, you had the big decline after the, the tech bubble. And if you would have rebalanced, you would have gotten in at a good time into the equity market. And then, you know, obviously the great financial crisis and then more recently here. So to me, that 60-40, if you do stick to it, would have done fine over the last two decades. Okay. now that's from a strategic perspective. We make sure that we're in alignment with our clients from a tactical perspective. Yes, I'm overweight uh, equities, particularly when you look at the riskier components of the fixed income market. I think high yield is expensive. And while I don't see defaults unfolding, I I would rather take that risk from a portfolio perspective and put it into the equity market, because I think there's much more upside in the equity market longer term from that perspective. So, yes, we would be overweight, you know, equities in our portfolios. Is there anything you do in in alternatives as you think about sort of complementing the stock bond allocation? How how do you think about the role of alternatives? Commodities have had a fantastic year, um, to your point on oil moving higher and and some of the other broad-based commodities or any other diversifiers that you think are are interesting given the the market uh, environment we have here? So my view on alternatives is, is that it's not an asset class, right? I think that alternatives are an implementation vehicle, okay? So, for example not to get too technical, but in, in the equity space, right? If you want to doll up your risk, you know, then you're going to go into your private equity and your, you know, long only hedge funds that are concentrated portfolios. If you want to doll down your risk, you're going to get into a long short, right? In, you know, fixed income, right? You can do distressed debt, right? That type of thing. In, in the commodity space, you can do the macro, um, you know, hedge funds. So I look at them as, a, as more of an implementation vehicle, to dial up or dial down your risk. And I will tell you, I talked to a lot of institutions out there 
And that's exactly the way they're viewing it right now. They just look at it as more of a, as an implementation vehicle within the broader landscape of an asset allocation. To your point, um, I have a slightly different view on commodities. I think if you look back historically, you know, commodities have been a very um, lackluster performer. I think if you go back over the last 20 years, I think the average annual return has been around 2% with a lot of volatility around it. So we view commodities more of a tactical play in a portfolio. So when you see a cyclical recovery, you want to be in those cyclical type of commodities, right? Your industrial metals, your energies of the world. When you get a little bit more cautious on the world, right? That's when gold becomes a player in your portfolio. So we tend to look at those more tactically to complement the portfolios. Interesting. Um, this, this has been a, a big uh, crypto week. Bitcoin has been been hot uh, as sort of the new commodity on the block. Any any views, uh, your personal views, Raymond James views on how you how you think about cryptocurrencies and, and their role, if at all, in, in portfolios? Uh, I, I guess our biggest point is it's not a currency, right? I mean, with the volatility that you see in them in a given day, right, it's not really, you know, a, a currency. We always talk to, to investors about if they want to be in those types of things, you know, uh, meme stocks, cryptocurrencies, not that you can't have it, but just understand that what you're getting into is an extremely volatile component of your portfolio. So probably less than 5%, 5% or less of your portfolio with the understanding that you can lose almost all of it, right? But it does have the upside potential, like you said, over the last couple of weeks where it's gone back up to record highs. For me, I am a fundamental analyst, and it's very hard to find out what the fundamentals are of cryptocurrencies, some of these meme stocks. So to me, that's more akin to trading as opposed to investing. So again, just be aware of all the perils that could unfold when you do invest in those things. Yeah, we, we talked a, a sort of nice cross section of a lot of the global markets. We talked sectors. We talked a little bit international. Uh, we on, on emerging markets, we really focus on China. Is, is there any other views within emerging markets? Is it is it the same? Do you think about emerging markets as one bucket? Uh, do you think about those cyclical sectors? Like you can find you know pockets of EM with very high exposure to those energy and cyclical sectors that you were talking about, or do you just think about it sort of broadly as as an EM asset class? So we tend to favor more the uh, Asian emerging markets because of the reasons that, that we mentioned earlier. That's where you have the best growth in the world. That's where you have, in, in our opinion, some of the, the best valuations in the world because it has been a laggard here of late with some of the political uncertainty. It does have that long-term sector, meaning that when you look at China, you mentioned it, China, but not just China, but Asia in general, more exposure to tech, more exposure to the consumer. And those are two areas that I think are going to continue to do well in the emerging markets. Clearly, that is one area in particular that you want to have uh, active money management. That's a place where you can add value, where you have, as they say, boots on the ground to see what's going on specifically with these companies. What's, you know, I always say, you know, don't always believe the headlines, right? So you need somebody there to get behind the headlines to actually see what's going on. So, that's clearly an area that, that you do need active management. You know, the China story was, to me, super interesting that the you've seen 
obviously there was the price that came on, on under a lot of pressure earlier this year. But you actually, to me, when I was tracking money flows into China, people were buying the quote unquote buying the dip is what I saw through the ETF lens. Uh, I don't know if you saw that through Raymond James lens that people were looking at the sort of big big falls in those China tech names as as opportunities more than run for the exits. No, I've seen, I agree with you. I've seen the fund flows into those ETFs. Yes, they were going into there. And I think that's because of those valuations have become, you know, very attractive, right? And if you think that this is a, a world that's building up where it's going to be more of a technology-driven type of, I hate to call it war, but competition, you don't want to destroy those those assets that you have, if you will, for your respective countries. So I think that China will continue to, you know, as I said, dial back some of that rhetoric on a lot of those big tech companies over there. As we had such a very broad ranging conversation, are there places in the world that we haven't talked about that you find uh, are, are things that you're passionate about at, at Raymond James and, and things that you'd want to bring to people's people's attention? So I, to your point, you know, when it comes, I think selectivity has gotten very um, important to investors. As we mentioned, you know, tech isn't tech. Uh, I think in the consumer discretionary space is another example where you are seeing both vertical and horizontal integration, right? You know, when when you look at everybody looks at e-commerce, but if you look at some of the big box stores out there, you know, they've gotten much more into e-commerce. They're having they're doing, you know, hiring their own delivery services. Um, they're partnering, right? You see it all all the time now where they're partnering, where they're bringing in, you know, name brands into these stores to attract people to them. So my point is that this is no longer the consumer discretionary that you saw, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And I think you're seeing that happen across all the, all the sectors. I think you mentioned it. Technology is almost embedded in every single sector right now. Right. I mean, from a restaurant that is using tech to, to order, to pay, to manage its supply. Right. Um, uh, clearly, in the energy space, new technologies are coming rapidly. So I, I think that this world is changing. I think we have to be much more dynamic in how we look at the world and investing and not stay in those old set ways. And as I told you, there are so many myths and headlines that people watch on the news. Try not to get stuck in those, because I would tell you more times than not, you will be burned looking at them. You know, we have this one interesting chart that we put in our presentation all the time. And uh, we, we take the S&P 500 and show it on a daily basis. And you see the wiggles both up and down. Up is green, red is down. And you look at it and I ask people, was the market up or down over the last five years? And they can't tell you. And then I do it monthly. And you see more green than red. And you say, pretty good point that it was probably up. You do it quarterly, you know it's skewed to the upside. And then I show a cumulative chart. And it's actually been up over the last five years, 100%. So it's doubled. And it's been up on, on average almost 15%. And my point to investors is do not get locked in to the avalanche of headlines that you see. Be a long-term investor because that's how you're going to be successful with your portfolio. 
Yep, those day-to-day squizzles make you uh, make you think it's so risky, and you step back and you see that annual, the, the long-term compounding returns. I think that's the message we hear on Behind the Markets with Professor Siegel. Stocks for the long run is uh, a, a message that we that resonates very much with us. Larry Adam, uh, thank you so much. CIO of Raymond James, been a great conversation uh, here on Behind the Markets. Been uh, any place that people could find your work, you want to you want to highlight? I mean, most of the stuff is on our on our Twitter, so you can follow me on Larry Adam RJ, or you can obviously on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Thanks to our sound engineer Chris Tukes, Patty Hall, our producer. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. 